0: When the Nazis invaded Holland, they made it illegal for anyone to house or even help a Jewish person. Would you have complied? Corrie Ten Boom and her family decided they simply could not obey this evil dictate. At home, they began hiding Jewish people and others who sought refuge. This week on The Land and the Book, we'll visit their recreated hiding place. What a story. Welcome to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is with us. And Charlie, a lot of people wonder, how do I share the gospel with my Jewish friend? A good question, and uh, I think that question recognizes, though, the need for a sensitive approach to sharing with Jewish people.
1: Yeah, absolutely, John, and that's why our friends at Life and Messiah want to help answer that question. They put together a series of helpful articles on how you can share the good news with Jewish people around you. You'll learn about Jewish cultural sensitivities, how anti-Semitism affects Jewish evangelism, the importance of Messianic prophecy, and more. To access the articles, visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. You'll receive the articles to equip you with practical ways to share the good news with Jewish people around you or online. Again,
0: click on the Moody Radio icon at lifeinmessiah.org. All right, let's swing our focus toward current events in this opening segment. Last week, you reported on Egypt's Project of the Century to reinstall a granite-facing on the smallest of the three pyramids at Giza. So what has happened? Yeah, well, putting
1: it bluntly, John, the project of the century died a quick death. <laughs> we record our program a few days in advance to allow time for it to be uploaded to stations around the country. And from the time we recorded until the time the program aired, the project went from being announced to being sent out for more study to being totally canceled virtually everyone, including us last week, felt that uh, trying to reclad the pyramid in granite would ruin its appearance. And uh, apparently the, uh, the head of the whole project agreed. So the pyramid will remain as it has been for the last several millennia, which is really how it ought to be.
0: Story number two, reports are circulating that the U.S. is working with Arab allies to propose a plan for establishing a Palestinian state. What do we know about that plan? How is Israel responding?
1: Well, the initial reports are that the U.S. and several Arab countries have been preparing this comprehensive peace deal between Israel and the Palestinians that includes a firm timeline for a Palestinian state. The goal was to announce the plan sometime in the next few weeks after Israel and Hamas reached a deal to pause the fighting in Gaza. Apparently, the plan also anticipates the evacuation of many West Bank Jewish settlements and the establishment of a combined Palestinian government over both the West Bank and Gaza with its capital in East Jerusalem. Now, trying to capitalize on what it sees as U.S. and Arab support, the Palestinian Authority Prime Minister has called on Hamas to attend talks in Moscow next week to form a unity government. When he was asked about joining with a group that committed murders, rapes, and kidnapping, Uh, That prime minister said, well, one should not continue focusing on October 7. As you can expect, Israel responded very negatively to the proposal once it was revealed, saying now is not the time to be speaking about giving gifts to the Palestinian people, especially when the Palestinian Authority itself still refuses to condemn the October 7 massacre. Israel's cabinet unanimously approved a declaration rejecting any unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state, Saying such a move would be a massive, unprecedented prize for terror that would prevent any future peace deal, the U.S. seemed caught in the middle of this exploding story. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken tied the creation of a Palestinian state to what he called extraordinary opportunities in the coming months to normalize ties between Israel and its Arab neighbors. But at the same time, U.S. Ambassador to Israel Jack Lew spoke in Jerusalem, saying the U.S. has never said there should be unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state. He did, however, go on to speak about an over-the-horizon process that includes a vision for a demilitarized Palestinian state. So what exactly is taking place? Well, it seems the U.S. and some Arab countries have been quietly trying to push for a plan that would set up a firm timeline leading to a Palestinian state. They likely hope that the ceasefire agreement with Hamas and the release of Jewish hostages would allow them to push that process forward. But With the hostage deal apparently not happening and an Israeli attack on Rafah imminent, it's clear that the peace proposal may never see the light of day, at least not in the near term. In an apparent effort to appease allies and put more pressure on Israel, the U.S. then submitted a draft resolution to the U.N. Security Council seeking support for a, quote, temporary ceasefire as soon as practicable and saying an Israeli incursion into Rafah would harm civilians and should not proceed. Uh, the one thing all these actions help clarify is there's a growing rift that's going on between the U.S. and Israel. Uh, the U.S. sees a Palestinian state as the way to bring lasting peace, while Israel has little trust in any such promises, especially
0: since the events of October 7. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Charlie, any such Palestinian state seems to begin with the assumption that if these people just had the land, all would be well, ignoring the fact that they simply don't want Jews in the land at all or anywhere. Your thoughts.
1: Israel gave up Gaza. Uh, They had Palestinian elections. The Palestinians elected Hamas. Uh, Hamas then controlled Gaza and used it as a launching pad to launch missiles into Israel and to plot this attack from October 7, uh, what's to guarantee that that won't happen again? Right. And uh, certainly that's what Israel's looking at and said, you know, uh, we've been fooled once. Uh, We're not going to be fooled a second time.
0: Well, Israel is looking at modifying its military draft policy in response to current threats. What changes are being considered and how soon might any of them be implemented? Yeah, you know, visitors to
1: Israel might have heard that Israel has a universal military draft for its citizens uh, requiring men to serve 32 months and women 24 months starting at age 18. But the reality has been something different. Ultra-Orthodox Israelis and Arab Israelis are exempt from military service, though some do enlist. Uh, There's also voluntary national service for those who can't or don't wish to serve in the military. And about a quarter of all potential conscripts, for one reason or another, are exempted. So not everyone is serving now. But after serving their required time in the military, each soldier is assigned a reserve unit where they're on call until 40 for a typical soldier, 45 for officers, and 49 for those serving in special roles. Uh, Israel's been talking about moving toward an all-volunteer army, but the war with Hamas changed those plans when they had to suddenly call up 287,000 reservists. So now they're talking about increasing full-time military service for 36 months for both men and women and raising the retirement from reserve duty an additional five years, and increasing the number of days each former soldier is to serve on reserve duty. Uh, The most contentious part of the proposed overhaul, though, it's going to be how to integrate Israeli Arabs and ultra-Orthodox into the service. Arabs not wanting to serve in the army could be asked to do voluntary national service the ultra-Orthodox remain the main stumbling block. Mm-hmm. Some groups just refuse to accept the government of Israel. Uh, some believe studying the Torah and Talmuds more important than serving in the army. Others refuse to serve in units where they would be in close contact with women. You know, this debate's been going on for years, but the war with Hamas has brought it to the surface as people argue that no group should be exempt when all are being threatened. Uh, this is going to become a major issue upcoming, and certainly if there's new elections, this will become a major issue in those new elections.
0: Here's an interesting story. Archaeologists are perfecting a way to read ancient scrolls that were destroyed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. What is this new technique, and how might it help unlock these ancient manuscripts? This is
1: a great advance. and has real potential. Uh, Three students successfully deciphered parts of the scrolls discovered at Herculaneum, which was destroyed by Mount Vesuvius along with Pompeii back in AD 79. And they found there a library of 800 scrolls but the scrolls were illegible because the lava and high temperature had made them impossible to open. They were like charred pieces of rolled up ash. These students used a particle accelerator and high resolution CT scans to virtually unwrap some of the scrolls, but they were still unreadable. And then they trained AI software to recognize subtle differences in the scans caused by the ink, though the differences weren't even visible to the human eye. The first word they deciphered was the Greek word porphyrus or purple. Since then, they've been able to decipher 2,000 characters, making up about 5% of the material that was scanned. The challenge this year is to decipher 90% of the material that's been scanned, and eventually they hope to successfully read all 800 scrolls. Now, John, imagine reading 800 scrolls that were nearly incinerated almost 2,000 years ago. Wow! Uh, it's almost certain that it'll add to our understanding of first-century Roman thought and culture, And it's coming about because of the integration of archaeology, modern technology, and a positive application of artificial
0: intelligence. Fascinating. Well, Israeli scientists have developed a method to prolong the freshness of produce using sound waves. Tell us about this latest innovation from Amazing Israel. Anyone who's bought strawberries in the store only to have them go bad before they
1: could be eaten? Well, this will be a worthwhile story. The researchers developed an innovative method for coating fruit with edible nanoparticles using sonochemistry. Sound waves at ultra-high frequencies bombard a solution, coating the fruit with nanoparticles of chitocin, a polysaccharide. This imparts antibacterial properties to the surface of the fruit, effectively extending its shelf life. The nanoparticles are edible, and they don't impact the taste. And the shelf life, for example, of strawberries can be extended for 15 days using this technique. You know, Imagine being able to preserve fruit, vegetables, fresh foods for longer periods of time while preventing bacteria and microbes from spoiling the food or altering the taste. Now, it definitely sounds to me, John, like a healthy advance from the scientists and
0: researchers in amazing Israel. And that's a look at current events with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Well, when the Nazis invaded Holland, they made it illegal for anybody to house or help a Jewish person. But the Ten Boone family said, no, we're not going that way. They instead built a hiding place. We're about to revisit a recreation of that hiding place. We'll give you a feel for what it was like. That's all ahead on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. And if you like what you're hearing, why not tell a friend about The Land and the Book? When you visit the Everlasting Nation Museum in Chattanooga, Tennessee, you'll take a walk back in time. You'll follow in the steps of Abraham, see a tent just like he would have lived in. In fact, you might just meet somebody who looks like him You'll gaze up at a recreated section of the Western Wall, but you'll also walk through their Holocaust Memorial, which features a replica of Corrie Ten Boom's hiding place. Just who was Corrie Ten Boom? Why does her story matter 80 years later? Tell you what, there's an extraordinary story coming up next. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Gager, and you know, before we head off to the Everlasting Nation Museum, let's take in a fresh idea on how you and I can show the love of Jesus to the Jewish friends and neighbors right in our neighborhood. As Christians, we hear sermons all about the Jewish people being God's chosen people. Is that a fit subject for your Jewish friend, though? Can you say, do you really realize that Jewish people have been chosen, and why do you think that might be? Roy Schwartz is with Chosen People Ministries. If I had that kind of conversation and asked that question, what do you think I'd hear from my Jewish friend? Well, I have no idea what that means to be chosen. What does that mean? And that would bring up the dialogue of God being sovereign, and he has the right to choose whom he will. And whether we like it or not as Christians, God has chosen the Jewish people. And if he's chosen the Jewish people, then it's possible that because I've been made part of the Jewish people by my faith in the Jewish Messiah, that I've been chosen as well. And so that's how I understand what it is and why he chose the Jewish people, that there is this concept of him being the boss and choosing and me submitting myself to that choice. And one of the frustrating things to the world is that God has chosen people. Well, that's a fascinating conversation, and uh, I welcome you to try it with your Jewish friend. Roy Schwartz, by the way, with Chosen People Ministries. Thank you so much. Boy, what a treat to leave our studios today and travel to the Everlasting Nation Museum, which is in Chattanooga, Tennessee. The museum is part of a ministry known as the International Board of Jewish Missions. Brad Blanton is an administrative assistant to the general director at the International Board of Jewish Missions. He also helps plan ministry trips and trips to Israel and assists in the Everlasting Nation Museum. Hey, welcome to the land of the book, Brad.
2: Thank you, John. It's great to be here.
0: Now, if you've been to Israel, you'll be amazed at how much this museum feels like Israel. But for listeners who don't know a thing about this place, give us a quick overview.
2: Yeah, the Everlasting Nation Museum opened in 1978, and we were in downtown Chattanooga at that time, and it was uh, the idea of several different men, and they presented it to Jacob Gardenhouse, our founder. He loved the idea, especially since it would have a Holocaust section in it, because he had seen the Holocaust coming. He went to Germany in 1936 saw what was coming on the horizon, tried to warn people back here in the U.S. And uh, so the Holocaust was always a great, obviously a great burden on his heart since he was a uh, Jewish man himself, and so that's one of the reasons he wanted to have the museum is to have a Holocaust section in it. And our museum has been free since the day we opened.
0: Okay, before we get to the Holocaust section, the stunning recreation of the Western Wall as you walk in. That is just unbelievable. You know, having been to Israel, it's like the spitting image. That's magnificent.
2: We're really uh, happy about that, the way it turned out, and the Lord just led in so many ways and led us to a Christian designer, Chris Moore, down in Hampton, Georgia, who designed that for us, and so much of the work through the museum. And yeah, we try to bring a little bit of Jerusalem here to Chattanooga.
0: You uh, turn the corner, and there you are, staring into the open tent of something that looked like it might have been from Abraham's time. And then, boom, you push a button, and Abraham himself appears inside that tent under a a starry sky. It just raises the hair in the back of your neck. It's spectacular.
2: Well, we love that section. And it really starts off our museum tour in the right way, because Abraham's talking about God's irrevocable promise of blessing those who bless Israel and cursing those who curse them.
0: We've left our land in the book studios today to visit with Brad Blanton at the Everlasting Nation Museum in Chattanooga. We promised listeners a conversation about the hiding place, which is uniquely featured here at Everlasting Nation Museum. First, though, for somebody who has never really heard her story, just who was Corrie Ten Boom? And why is she still celebrated, you know, 80
2: years after World War II? The Ten Boom family repaired watches and clocks in Harlem, Holland, uh, the Netherlands. And uh, they were just a dynamic Christian family, but very simple down-to-earth folks. But they loved the Lord, they loved His Word, and they loved people, and especially God's chosen people, the Jewish people. And uh, so they were just a dynamic family. So it's no wonder that they were willing and ready to help Jewish people when they needed it. Hmm.
0: And so in their home, they built a hiding place. Describe how it was done and uh, what went on.
2: Yeah, they told them, look, as many Jewish people as you've got circulating through your home and staying in the rooms upstairs on the third level, and also Dutch resistance workers, the underground opposers of the Nazi regime, they said you better get a hiding place because it's not a matter of if you get raided but when you get raided so they chose corey's room to make the hiding place because her room was on the third story after a long winding staircase and they said this will be perfect they shortened her room by about two feet put up a, a brick wall, and to build the wall, they had to sneak in the bricks in grandfather clock boxes in order to not raise suspicion.
0: Right. He's a clock maker, and so it would be very natural for there to be those kinds of boxes. But that's, that's very few bricks at a time, though.
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess so. But uh, they got it done and built it in two days. Willem Hook, who happens to be the grandfather of one of our missionary ladies, he built it in two days. And uh, the Nazis never found those in there.
0: You know, I had to process all of this. I'm a little slow, Brad. Uh, It was made of brick for a very specific reason.
2: Yes, it was made of brick because the Nazis were experts at finding hiding places. They knew where to look. And they would tap on the walls to see if they were hollow sounding. And that would often give them a clue. So that's why he made it out of brick. But not only that, he cut the floorboard And drop the bricks below the floorboard, because if the Nazis would have come in and pulled off the molding on the bottom and seen that the wall was on top of the floor, they would know that it had been added.
0: Wow. No, no detail left uh, unattended there. Well, do you think that the Ten Boom family thought that they were ultimately going to be caught?
2: I think they knew it was inevitable. And uh, they just kept committing that to the Lord and turning to Scripture for their encouragement and praying. I mean, they believed in prayer. And they, it's interesting, they nicknamed the hiding place the angel's den. And I think that probably had reference to Daniel being in the den of lions and how the angel of God protected him. And uh, I think they knew that ultimately God would use that hiding place to protect Jewish people.
0: Brad Blanton is an administrative assistant to the general director at the International Board of Jewish Missions. He also helps plan ministry trips and trips to Israel and assists here at the Everlasting Nation Museum in Chattanooga. Well, eventually they were caught, and as it turns out, uh, it was it was someone who turned coat on them, so to speak.
2: Yes, a man came in early that morning and told Corey. Corey happened to be very sick, so she was a little bit out of it, we would say. And he told her, oh, my wife has been uh, captured, but I can bribe a Dutch policeman. She's Jewish. I need, I think it was 600 guilders. And she didn't play dumb or didn't ask questions. And so she said in her delirium, being sick, she said, come back this afternoon and we'll have the money for you. And they did have the money. But when he came back at five o'clock that Monday evening, February 28, 1944, he brought with him the Gestapo.
0: And here we are 80 years later. Well, the family then was what? Hauled off, right?
2: Well, yeah. First, they were kept there for a while. Of course, Corey was asleep in her bed as they sounded the buzzer below to alert those upstairs that there was a raid. So four uh, Jewish people, two men, two women, and two Dutch resistance workers had to scurry into the hiding place in less than a minute. Corey wakes up in the middle of this at first thinking she was having a bad dream and then realizing what was happening. They didn't know if it was a false alarm or not, but they were able to get in there. She shut the door, threw her suitcase in front of it, then shut the linen closet door. And then of course she knew it was real when the Gestapo came up and started slapping her around and asking her where she was hiding the Jews. Then they took the whole family downstairs where they were having the prayer meeting that they had had for 100 years, praying weekly for the Jewish people and for God to restore them to their country. And so eventually that night, they took about 30 people to the police station.
0: Hmm. Let's talk about the hiding place itself. You have here at the museum a fantastic and historically accurate replica. I understand that this recreation of the hiding place is built on original blueprints. Tell us more.
2: Yes, the museum in the house in Harlem, in Holland, the Netherlands, is still a museum today. And so they graciously gave us permission to recreate this here. And of course, ours isn't three stories up. It's on ground level. (laughs) But uh, we recreated it with their exact dimensions. So the room is about nine by 12. The hiding place is a little less than two feet by a little less than nine feet uh, wide. So it's quite narrow. Yeah, it sounds cozy, maybe even
0: fun in a way, but keep in mind that that hiding place, as you say, just nine feet long, just under two feet wide, and six adults were often confined in there. They had only a small tin of crackers, no water, virtually no light, fresh air, nothing like that, except a small amount that filtered to the one vent on the back wall. That is just not a fun experience.
2: No, it wasn't. And, you know, they had had many practice drills and they never knew was it real or was it a practice well this was the one time and really the only time that the hiding place was used for real to protect lives and of course it, it helped rescue those those six people but it was difficult by the by the end of the 47 hours they were about to go bonkers because yeah. uh, they did not know it you know it's one thing if you knew you've got to do this for 47 hours but they didn't know when the end would come.
0: You know, it's one thing for Corey's father, Casper, to be a devout follower of Jesus. It's one thing for him to have this idea of a hiding place. But it's quite another for adult children like Corey and her sister, Betsy, and the other siblings to also take this huge risk. I think, Brad, that speaks volumes about the fruit of raising godly children. What lesson do you think Christian parents can take away from Mr. Tenboom's example?
2: Yeah, I think it is a great example. As I said, this family clearly loved the Lord and loved the Word of God. And so it's no accident that they loved people and and the chosen people. But their dad, Casper, he was in his 80s by the time all this was taking place. And he loved the Lord. He unashamedly, whether it was Gentiles around their table or Jewish people, he would read the Word of God every night. In fact, even the night they got taken to the police station, They read from Psalm 91 Mm -hmm. And, and just the life lessons that he taught his girls, teaching them that God would supply the grace they need when they needed it. And I think that strengthened those girls who were now in their 50s by the time this took place.
0: You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Gager. pleased to be visiting with Brad Blanton at the Everlasting Nation Museum, a ministry of the International Board of Jewish Missions. Two of your faithful missionaries for the organization were saved in a Corey Ten Boom meeting after the war. They have a very personal connection to the hiding place and the Ten Boom family. Tell us a bit more.
2: Yes, our missionaries, uh, when they were in their 20s, they didn't know the Lord. They heard Corey speak. She was Dutch. They were Dutch. They accepted the Lord as their Savior. And then it was so neat because then our missionary lady found out it was her grandfather, Willem Hook. And I'm sure I'm not saying that like a good Dutch-speaking person would, but he's the one that built the hiding place. And so we have this personal connection with that whole story. And then they use this story everywhere they go in the world, including Israel, telling people about the hiding place and using that as an introduction to the gospel.
0: Now, you've got yet another story.
2: Yes, they were stuck in the Netherlands during COVID, but they, they don't stop working and witnessing. So they were out handing out Bibles, met a couple of girls that looked Middle Eastern, asked them where they were from. They were probably in their 20s. They said, oh, we're from Jordan. They said, oh, we're kind of neighbors in because we spend a lot of time in Israel. And then the girl said, oh, we're actually from Israel. We were just afraid to tell you. Well, our missionary lady started using the Ten Boom story, as she always does, as a lead into the gospel. And this girl said, oh, you're not going to believe this. My husband is working in Israel, and he just texted me. I think it was that very morning, and said, you've got to read The Hiding Place by Corrie Ten Boom. <laughs> and... Our missionary bends down into her Bible book bag and pulls out a copy of The Hiding Place in Hebrew. Wow. And that morning, as they were preparing their Bibles to take out to the streets, God impressed her to put one copy of The Hiding Place in Hebrew in her book bag. So this story lives on and continues to be a testimony to people.
0: The Hiding Place, for sure a great book to read, but why not come see that recreated hiding place as you visit the Everlasting Nation Museum in Chattanooga. That's Brad Blanton. I'm John Geiger. Charlie Dyer's up next with a fresh set of Bible questions here on The Land and the Book. This is The Land of the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. This third segment of the broadcast, it's all about questions. And one question that many people have, Charlie, is how do I share the gospel with my Jewish friend? The question seems to recognize the need for a sensitive approach to sharing with Jewish people. And I think that's a good start, right?
1: It's a very good start. And that's why our friends at Life and Messiah want to help answer that question. They put together a series of helpful articles on how you can share the good news with Jewish people around you. You'll learn about Jewish cultural sensitivities, how anti-Semitism affects Jewish evangelism, the importance of Messianic prophecy, and more. Now, to access these articles, visit lifeinmessiah.org. Click on the Moody Radio logo and sign up. You'll receive the articles to equip you with practical ways to share the good news with Jewish people around you or online. Again, click on the Moody Radio icon at
0: lifeinmessiah.org. I'm intrigued with what you are wondering about as you open your Bibles and and, uh, take a look at the scriptures and try to wrestle with some of the truths there. So let's get right to our questions for the day, starting with this one from Ed, who says, I seem to remember a passage in Exodus when the wandering Jews came to a Gentile people group who then joined the Hebrew people. They then become Jews or proselytes. I, I think I got this from Exodus, but I can't seem to find it. Can you help? Yeah, I'm not
1: sure what group you have in mind. Now, Exodus 12:38 says that when Israel left Egypt, there was a mixed multitude who went out with them. Those would be Egyptians or other non-Israelites from Egypt who decided to follow along with Israel. And some of them were likely then absorbed into the Israelite community. A second possibility that comes to mind might be the Midianites or the Kenites mentioned during the time of the Exodus. You know, Moses reconnected with the Midianites when he was a fugitive from Pharaoh. In fact, Jethro, who was Moses' father-in-law, was a Midianite priest. And then in Exodus 18, we see Jethro reconnecting with Moses in the wilderness. The Midianites are also closely associated with the Kenites, and in Judges 1.16, they are said to be connected with Jethro and have gone up from Jericho with the sons of Judah.
0: Now, uh, apart from those groups,
1: though, I can't really think of any others that might fit what you're
0: picturing. Alan wonders, does the Bible say Jesus will appear in the east or from the east?
1: a couple passages that some might use in that regard. In Matthew you know Jesus was talking about his return. He says, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. Now, it doesn't actually say he's coming from the east, since it's connecting the east with the illustration of viewing a lightning storm. Uh, and the second passage, though, might be Zechariah 14, which talks about on, on that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, And the Mount of Olives will be split in two. So Jesus will return to the Mount of Olives at his second coming. And the verse notes that it's east of Jerusalem, uh, but uh, it's just immediately east geographically. So it's not picturing too far east. Uh, The one I think most people talk about, though, would be Isaiah 63, verse 1. It says, who's this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this, robed in splendor, striving forward in the greatness of his strength? So Edom and Basra are technically southeast of Jerusalem and Judah, but some believe that's picturing Jesus returning via Petra or Edom or Basra. To me, it's not quite as clear, but I put all those together. I think Jesus does return to the Mount of Olives on the east side of Jerusalem, but I'm not sure if he actually comes from somewhere else in the east. That's the Isaiah 63 is just not quite as clear to me.
0: Questions and Answers. That's our segment here on The Land and the Book. Charlie Dyer is doing the answering. I'm John Gager representing your questions. This one from Mark, who says I recently came upon the book Biblical Backgrounds of the Middle East Conflict by Georgia Harkness and Charles Kraft. I've become suspicious that the theology of the authors is liberal to the point of questioning the legitimacy of Exodus miracles. So I question whether the observations in the book would be of any value. Are you familiar with this book or the authors? And if so, do you feel the background provided is of value? Well, I've not seen that particular book, but I I do know
1: both authors are professors at Garrett Seminary in Chicago, uh, which is a liberal Methodist school. So I would assume that they don't accept the legitimacy of the account of Israel's exodus from Egypt And I also suspect they would not see God's continuing covenant relationship to the Jewish people or modern Israel, certainly not in the way that I see it. Now, if you do keep reading, just do so with a questioning and and critical mind. Trust your own instincts and what you've read in God's
0: word to evaluate their arguments. All right. Thank you, Charlie. Matt and Donna want to know, where did the Palestinian people come from? What is their history? Yeah, well,
1: in answer to this question, there never was a specific Palestinian people group like other nations in the Middle East that can trace back their heritage to Genesis 10 and the Table of Nations. In one sense, they're similar to the United States, just as our country is a melting pot of different ethnic groups. The Palestinians, at least genetically, are the product of all the different conquerors and peoples who came through and settled the land throughout history. That's why, in addition to the typically swarthy Middle Eastern, olive-skinned Palestinians, There are Palestinians with blonde hair and blue eyes, red-headed Palestinians, very dark-skinned Palestinians. And if that's not enough, there are also the, the Bedouin, who are likely part of the remnant of Ishmael's 12 sons. But historically, the different nations came through the land, they left their genetic fingerprints on the population who remained, and they are the ones that we now refer to as Palestinians. Now, socially, The Palestinians consider themselves natives of the land that they call Palestine, and they say they lived there from the time of Hadrian until today. The majority are Muslim, not all, but the majority, and some have lived in their homes and villages and towns for centuries. At times, Mahmoud Abbas has tried to connect the Palestinians to the Canaanites, the original inhabitants, and to the Philistines, who the Bible says actually came from the Mediterranean beyond Crete. In fact, it mentions that in Jeremiah 47 and Amos 9 but such statements don't align with reality. Again, if we could do genetic testing on a large cross-section of Palestinians, I'm sure you would find genetic connections to Jews, Arabs from the Arabian Desert, European Crusaders, Africans, and a mixture of those from Egypt, Turkey, Syria, and Iraq, along with a number of other nationalities. And that's why I see them more like the U.S. in the sense that they're a combination of ethnic backgrounds held together by a common language, Arabic, a common religion, Islam, and a common geographical home, that land that uh, the Bible refers to as Judea and Samaria, which then the Palestinians call Palestine.
0: Todd asks, Where is the promise of the Messiah found in the Old Testament? I know that there are many prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament, but I don't see super clear references to Messiah. I can see Psalm 2 and Daniel 9, but am I missing others? The name Christ is used so often in the New Testament. I'm just trying to see where this identity is emphasized in the Old Testament. Can you help? Yeah, and for
1: those who may not be familiar, the word Christ in the New Testament is the Greek version of anointed, uh, which is a translation of the Hebrew word mashiach or Messiah. But I think the clearest use of anointed or Messiah to refer to the Messiah, though, is, uh, as you noted, Daniel 9. You know, God gave Daniel the prophecy of the 70 weeks of seven years of Israel's future. And in verse 25, he tells Daniel, to know and understand from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, there's the Mashiach, the ruler comes, and he gives the amount of time. So all kings in Israel were messiahs, small m, in the sense that they were all anointed to be king. But Daniel is singling out a very specific individual, and the timing is such that historically uh, that period goes from the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem in Nehemiah 2 to the official arrival of this anointed one, or Messiah, in Jerusalem at the very time Jesus rode in on the colt, the foal of a donkey. So I see it, by the way, that's Zechariah 9, 9 being fulfilled, and I see that as a confirming passage. It doesn't use the term Messiah, but it does say Israel's king, Melech, will be the one riding into Jerusalem on the colt. Now, other passages don't use Mashiach, but they do clearly picture the coming of a divine human ruler, Isaiah 7, mentions that uh, with the uh, the Emmanuel, the child that's going to be born. Isaiah 9 uh, says he's going to sit on David's throne, and his titles are going to be uh, uh, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Other passages picture the, the Messiah connected with uh, ruling before, like Micah chapter 5 two. Anyway, all of that, I do see these different parallels, but uh, the term Messiah isn't used as much in the Old Testament. But by the time of the New Testament, they clearly understood who the Messiah
0: was, this anointed one, to be
1: that coming Messianic King.
0: Mary takes us to Matthew 18, verse 20, which says, where two or three are gathered together in the Lord's name, he is with them. Some use this verse, she says, to refer to people gathering for worship or prayer. However, doesn't the context have to do with church discipline? So is Matthew 18, 20 about people gathering for worship or for discipline? Yeah, and this might surprise people, but I I think, Mary,
1: you're right. It connects verse 20 to the previous verses, especially verse 16 on discipline. Now, to me, the order seems logical. If you see a believer sinning, first go to them privately to point out the problem. If they respond positively, the matter's resolved. If not, you're to take one or two others to serve as witnesses. And Jesus then talks about the consequences should the individual still refuse to repent. He says the matter's then to be shared with the entire congregation. And whatever they decide to do on earth, what's already been determined in heaven, And it switches their intenses in Greek, but uh, that gets a little beyond what we need to talk about here. But finally, then in verse 20, Jesus comes back to the two or three, which in context looks back to the individual and the one or two witnesses he took along to confront the person who was sinning.
0: Well, it's been fun discovering what puzzles you as you open your copy of the scriptures. And a reminder that your question is welcome any old time. Email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's the land and the book at moody.edu. Our website is a great place to connect further with the program. You can always learn more about our guests, past programs, future programs, and more. The website address, of course, is thelandandthebook.org. Charlie's about to open his Bible, take you to someplace special. It's in his devotional, and it's all coming up next right here on the land and the book. human nature. When somebody does us a wrong turn, we want to do them at least a wrong turn back, right? Maybe a turn and a half wrong back. I'm John Geiger with that Admission. This is the land of the book. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is about to, to deliver a devotional that has quite a different message. Where are we going, Charlie?
1: Well, actually, we're going to head to the book of Romans, uh, talking about overcoming evil with good. We're also going to head to Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Museum.
0: That's all ahead after we listen to this Holy Land experience. I love these testimonies, and I think you do too. Kind of uh, connects us better with the Holy Land through the eyes of a person just like you and me.
3: First of all, before I went to the Holy Land, I never really paid attention to biblical geography, but after going there, geography really enriches the stories of the Bible. Another misconception that I had was that pretty much everything archeological had already been discovered, but then I found out that more discoveries were being made every day. So it was really fascinating. I had several wow moments, one of them was going to En Gedi which I just really appreciated the green as well as the peace and quiet and the running water there. And I could just imagine David writing his Psalms there. It's just amazing the age of things there. I mean, in the United States, you can go see the Constitution or the, the declaration of independence and it's 200 years old, which is really old. But then you go to Capernaum and you find Peter's house and also the foundation for the synagogue that was there when Jesus was there and that's 2,000 years old and then when we were up in Dan our guide told us that they had just recently discovered this arch which we were able to see and it was 2000 BC and there was even a chance that Abraham had seen this arch when he came into the land so just a lot of amazing things in the Holy Land and I look forward to going back.
0: Overcoming evil with good. It sure doesn't come natural
1: to me, Charlie. Uh, nor me as well, John. But let me take it to someone and some place that I think will help put it in the right perspective. A journey to Israel does generate a kaleidoscope of emotions, excitement, joy, laughter, amazement, thankfulness. But there's one location in Israel that leaves pilgrims sad, somber, and silent. It's Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust museum. This is the site where Israel seeks to remember the 6 million Jews killed by the Nazis during World War II. Amid all the horror, there are elements of bravery, compassion, and hope that shine out from the darkness. The memorial to the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising against the Nazis. The sculpture of Janish Korshak and the orphans he willingly accompanied to the gas chamber to give them comfort and the avenue of the righteous among the nations where over 2,000 carob trees are planted in memory of Gentiles who risked their lives to save Jews. We have some time, so walk with me up this avenue toward the memorial to the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. By each carob tree is a plaque identifying the name and country of the individual for whom it was planted. Some, like the tree and plaque for Oskar Schindler, are well known. Others are far less famous, though equally honored, because of their willingness to risk their lives for the Jewish people. The trees and plaques are a fitting tribute to brave individuals, but it does sadden me to see how few trees there are. Most Gentiles stood by and did nothing during that dark period, and that includes many who claim to be followers of Jesus. At the far end of this plaza, just to the left of the memorial to the Warsaw Uprising, is a rather small carob tree that almost seems out of place among the larger, more established ones. But actually, it's smaller because it's a relatively new tree. The original died and had to be replaced. Look carefully at the sign at the base of this tree. It reads, Corey Tenboom and Father Casper and Sister Elizabeth. These three natives from Holland risked their lives to protect a group of Jews fleeing persecution. Sadly, someone turned them in. Eighty years ago this week, on February 28, 1944, the Nazis raided their house and arrested the family. Casper died in police custody, while Corey and her sister ended up in the Ravensbrück concentration camp. Corey survived, but her sister perished. When we look at events like the Holocaust, or the recent brutality of Hamas, or even, on a smaller scale, the suffering experienced by Corey Tenboom and her family, or any situation where evil seems to triumph, our natural reaction is anger. Anger at others for the evil they do. Anger at God for allowing such things to happen. Even anger at ourselves for the fear that, at times, keeps us from taking a stand for what's right. And that's when a small verse tucked in Paul's practical commands at the end of the book of Romans can prove to be so helpful. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. But what did Paul mean by those words? How are we able to overcome evil through good? Verse 21 is Paul's summary his concluding statement, but it follows a list of practical commands where Paul draws a contrast between inappropriate evil responses and God-honoring good responses. Now, here's just a partial list of what Paul says there in Romans 12. Hate what's evil, but cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And then Paul summarizes it all by saying, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He's saying that the best way to overcome what's evil and wrong in the world is to do what's good and right in God's eyes. And that brings me back to Yad Vashem, the Avenue of the Righteous Gentiles, Corey Ten Boom, and us. Corey Ten Boom was cut from the same spiritual cloth as us. She freely acknowledges in her books the struggles she had in her own spiritual life. But during those times, she also discovered truths about God and life that matured her spiritually. Don't assume Corey was perfect. Even following her release from the concentration camp at the end of the war, she still wrestled with her own anger in spite of God's command to forgive. Here's her description of a key crisis point after the war. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the service was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed the silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not in our forgiveness, any more than in our goodness, that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us, along with the command, the love itself. Corey Tenboom was a follower of Jesus who was placed in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. But as she allowed God to work in her life, she discovered the truth of Romans 12 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Most of us will never face the level of horror experienced by Corey Tenboom. But all of us will face evil in some form. And we all need to learn how to stand against it using God's weapons and not our own. Sometime today, read Romans 12, verses 9 to 21. Master the lessons in those verses so you can also overcome whatever evil Satan throws against you. It might not be easy, but it
0: is possible. Just ask Cory Tenboom. But what a powerful reflection. Thank you, Charlie. As we honor the life of Corey Tenboom, and as we ourselves are challenged to overcome evil with good. You can hear today's devotional again at our website, thelandandthebook.org. In fact, you can hear the entire program there, and we recommend you do that. In fact, we recommend you let a friend know about our podcast. It's available right there at thelandandthebook.org. Have we heard from you lately? Your email is always welcome. Here's how you connect, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's the land and the book at moody.edu. Hey, thanks for being a part of today's visit. Hope you come back again next time for another edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.